1: After 80 years of COVID mayhem, it looked as though, certainly in the West, and this is such an important caveat, such an important caveat because it's part of the problem. But certainly in the West, it seemed as though we were clawing our way through a misery uh, which has defined so much of our life for such a long period of time towards a semblance of whatever normality was. Mass vaccination in many Western countries seemed a huge triumph, bringing down a horrific death toll. Uh, a death toll, which of course has seen in this country excess deaths of or deaths generally of around 140 to 150 thousand people, uh, about three times more than uh, the Nazi air force managed in the Blitz. And hospitalisation was being brought down. Now there'd been talk of COVID burning itself out, that it had gone in every possible direction it realistically could be, as to as and um, in terms of of the variants and variants, of course, was something which in 2021 we became all too familiar with but even before the latest news there was cause for anxiety uh because lockdown had returned to Austria the Netherlands is sliding back that way and restrictions have been tightened in other European countries now here in the UK if we're going to be brutally honest we became pretty blase or many did certainly not a couple of the experts we have to uh, what well, many of the experts we have today but about a deathly death rate uh, a daily death rate of between 125 and 161, as well as rampant infections and huge numbers of long COVID, something which is not spoken about enough. But the news that South African scientists had discovered a new variant, Omicron, continuing the theme of ruining the Greek, Greek alphabet, variously described as horrific and the worst one yet, with numerous mutations which could, and we don't know properly yet, mean its resistance to vaccines. All of this obviously has caused horror and has chilled billions of people across the world. Uh, we know, we don't know, and it's very important we say this because we'll talk up to our experts about this. We don't properly know how serious Omicron is. We, we do, it does seem as though it could be, to a degree, resistance to the vaccines that we've had. Uh, that it could reinfect the already infected and it could be potentially hugely infectious but these are questions that are going to be answered in the coming weeks but let's see how the world health organization announced the news
0: so today who's technical advisory group on virus evolution met to discuss the variant b11529 to discuss what we understand about this variant and if it should be classified as a variant of interest or a variant of concern Based upon the information that we have, particularly from South Africa, um, they have advised WHO that this variant should be classified as a variant of concern. So today we are announcing B11529 as a variant of concern named Omicron.
1: Now, here in Britain, uh, Boris Johnson, whose government has always been catastrophically, if we're going to be brutally honest, uh, to say the least, behind the curve on COVID, with terrible consequences for human life, has announced new measures.
2: We will also go further in asking all of you to help contain the spread of this variant by tightening up the rules on face coverings in shops and on public transport. And third, and most importantly, we need to bolster our protections against this
1: new variant.
3: So, how serious is Omicron? What is the
1: likely impact? What can we do to stop it or mitigate the consequences of Omicron? And has the West brought disaster on itself by hoarding vaccines and not allowing the mass vaccination of the global South? Now, before we bring in our two first pretty guests, Normal Housekeeping, if you're watching live, please click on the YouTube link. Uh, That helps support the show. Press like and press subscribe. Um also, uh for those supporting us on Patreon, you make all of this, including our documentaries possible, including our latest documentary about property developers waging war on working class communities. That's patreon.com forward slash own eighty four. You can also support the show using Super Chat on YouTube where you can put questions to our guests. And uh that will I will read out everyone who supported at the end. Um and also the podcast, which is obviously a very important part of the show, uh, do subscribe on the podcast. Now, I'm going to bring in our two first brilliant guests, Dr. Helen Soulsby from Oxford University and Professor Susan Mickey from UCL. Let's bring them in now. Hey to Helen and to Susan. How are you doing? Morning. Oh, good. Very well, thanks. I should explain, actually, because it's slightly odd that I'm actually, it looks like I'm in a cave. I'm actually not. I'm in I'm in Snowdonia, in lovely North Wales, the land of my fathers, which is exciting, Um. Okay, so let's start. I'm going to see if I can start something slightly cheerful ish. See where we go. For it. This. So, the South African doctor who raised the alarm about Omicron said the symptoms are unusual but mild. Um, she noticed otherwise healthy patients showing unusual symptoms, but worries about how a new variant might hurt the elderly. Now, we don't know much about the variant, let's be honest, properly. But what, I suppose, how serious do you think it currently is, the situation? We
4: don't know. We just don't know. I think I think that's that's the problem, and the question is: Are we going to take the precautionary principle, which we haven't generally done in this country until we do know? So it, it could be everything from actually more transmissible but generally milder, so that's good, or it could be absolutely awful in in the older people who are not vaccinated, and we just don't know that. What's your thoughts, Susan? Yeah, can I just add
2: that that um, news clip about um it being milder is as i understand it one gp and one family and there's been several um expert uh tweets correcting that and saying um nothing should be read into that so in terms of how serious it is i completely agree with with helen um in terms of the symptoms we don't know yet But in terms of um, how transmissible it is and the extent to which it might lower the effectiveness of our vaccines, the the reason for the big concern is the number of mutations. I think there are 50 mutations on this, 30 on the spike protein. And the way they're clustered is what's getting experts in that area really worried about it.
1: Now, I suppose some, I mean, I said b- before that there had been speculation that COVID could just burn itself out um, and that it's basically gone in every possible direction um, that, av- that that the virus could in terms of variants. Was that what one of your, uh, one fellow expert uh, has suggested uh, is, this is Dipti Gurdasani, who's an epidemiologist, she called it hopium uh, <laughs> or, or copium, uh, that people were just finding, you know, we've gone through a desperate situation, find the best, you know, and, and, and that actually allowed, the, which I'm talking to guests later, the West to, I suppose, justify not properly vaccinating the Global South. What do you think about, when you heard all that speculation about it's burning itself out, can't really go any other direction, there's variants, what did you think there
4: about? wasn't, There wasn't really any evidence for that, and I, do, and I totally agree with Dipti, I mean, there, there's, and I think particularly our politicians, they desperately want to paint an optimistic picture, because if the world goes wrong, then then they are damaged in the process in terms of their electability. So they keep needing to say, it's fine, it's going to be fine, believe in us, be optimistic. Um, But people who are kind of scientists and doctors or even just sensible have to take a different view and think, well, we don't know, and it could be fine if we're really, really lucky. But actually, it may not be fine. And therefore, we need to be acting on, of course, the principle, we need to be being really careful. There's lots of things we need to be doing right now to slow the spread, because what we've got in place at the moment, even with a bit more mask wearing, is not going to be enough if this is um, a more transmissible variant.
1: What do you think about, Susan, all that speculation?
2: Viruses do what viruses do. They will just go from one person to another if you let them. And the reason for any optimism was the incredible achievements of um, Far East countries and Australasia in terms of um, virtually eliminating um, the earlier variants. If the whole world had taken the same approach, and if the whole world had shared the vaccines when they first emerged, then we wouldn't be in the situation we're in at the moment. But unfortunately, um, some of the governments um, in the world, uh, including ours, unfortunately have... um, not taken that approach, have tried to contain it while allowing people to have uh, lots of contacts um, when actually fewer contacts wouldn't restrict our lives hugely and we can take all sorts of precautions to eliminate like getting ventilation and air filtration into schools and workplaces and all public places, like getting financial and practical support for people who are symptomatic or test positive to isolate from those who are not yet infected. There are all sorts of measures that other countries have taken um, that if all governments had taken where they could, and a simple um, behaviour of wearing face masks in crowded indoor places, we could have been in a very different place. And the problem is, when you allow these high rates of uh, transmission, then new variants are likely to occur. That's just what happens with the evolution of this um, virus. If we had acted earlier, I think there's a real chance. It doesn't just die out. It depends on what policies and behaviours people have and do. But the longer we leave it, not sharing vaccinations and not having sensible policies, the less chance there is of us actually being able to properly control this virus.
1: Now, I mean, in terms of just how this possibly could have happened, I mean, it's very important, lots of obviously people in South Africa, not least scientists, are very angry about the response because South Africa has a very advanced, uh, when it comes to uh, virology, when it comes to analyzing uh, and and discovering new variants, it's very, very sophisticated indeed. Uh, So they feel they're being punished simply because they've managed to uh, do the sequencing, which they're they specialize in to identify the variant and now they've got travel bans being imposed upon them and we don't actually know that this originated in South Africa at all. But um, what my understanding is, again, as with a, a non-scientific cap on, that this could have emerged, this probably emerged in the body of a single person that if you have um, someone, for example, who's immunocompromised, their body's not able to defeat the virus and that then means the virus can mutate in various different ways in, in a single body. Is, is that essentially what's happened? Do you know?
4: I don't think we do know. And I'm not sure that we can know exactly how and whether there were various mutations that happened in, in different people and they added up, or whether lots of them happened in in the same person, or where that person was. Because um, Gauteng province where where this has been detected it's a real hub, lots of people come and go all the time. So we've no idea where this where this arose. The more virus you have circulating, the more likely there are to be mutations. But it's true, things can arise in, in one person or accumulate bit by bit in lots of different people.
1: Yeah, what do you think, Susan?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the key point. The higher the cumulative transmission, the more there are mutations and the more mutate, because the mutations happen as the virus goes from one person to another, and the more mutations there are, the more likely there are to be new variants that are more trans- transmissible and possibly more dangerous <laughs> that then outperform the variant we have. So the key thing we need to do, and why I think yesterday's announcement fell short, is to drive down community transmission levels. We, we have had very, very high transmission levels for months now in this country, which means you look at the overall number of people who get sick, who've been in hospital and who've died, is about twice that of um, comparable countries in Europe.
1: So before I ask in terms of specific measures and what the Prime Minister announced yesterday, um, I mean, again, we don't know how serious this is, but one uh, plane from South Africa to the Netherlands, which was tested for COVID and about 10% of them, it was over 61. So it was a couple of planes, I think, 61 people out of about 600 passengers had COVID. And bear in mind, as far as I know, you know most of them had to be tested. I'm not sure it depends on their vaccination status, but these were passengers tested for COVID beforehand. Uh, so that's that doesn't sound good, does it? And also, I mean, if this is resistant to vaccines, a lot of people watching this or listening to this will think, are we just... Potentially going back to square one after nearly two years. It's nearly two years since thirty uh, first of December, twenty nineteen, when a mysterious cluster of pneumonia was announced by the World Health Organization in Wuhan Province, in China. I mean, what do, do, does that potentially mean? You know, if it's that infectious, and it could, resi- you know, we could have the mass return of COVID that we thought was behind us.
2: Well, I two things. It doesn't sound. It doesn't well, sound good. In terms of the percentage of people being infected. Um, they were infected, uh, th- sorry, they were tested at the airport when they arrived. But one of the really concerning things is the fact that we're not doing that in this country. We're just allowing people to travel all over the country when they get here by public transport, and they won't know for two days as to whether they, if they do get tested, um, one hopes they will get tested, um, whether or not they test positive. A family member of mine came back from South Africa on Thursday. The wording just says they strongly request you to get tested. It doesn't even say instruct you to get tested. Um, and you know where's the follow up for those people? So that's the first thing. The second thing is on your second point, we won't go back to square one. You know, we've got the vaccinations and I don't think anybody's suggesting that the vaccinations won't be effective any longer. They'll carry on being effective. It's just they'll be less effective, which then means we have to compensate for that, if that's true, uh, by more you know, restrictive behaviour in terms of less contact uh, with other people. But we just don't know at the moment as to whether that's going to be the case or not.
1: What do you think, Helen?
4: I don't think we should be... Getting really gloomy and saying back to square one because it does seem likely that the um, that the vaccines that we've got will provide some protection. It might not be quite as good against this strain as it has been against the others. It may be a very good reason for getting um, third doses in more quickly, and a particularly good reason <laughs> for spreading the vaccine to a large proportion of our population and making sure they all get two doses, because so there's still quite a lot of people who are unvaccinated. Um, and our teenagers don't um, have only had one vaccine, and quite a lot of them haven't had any at all. And our younger children haven't had any vaccines, um, which is now being done in other parts of the world. So there's a, there's a lot more we can do with the vaccine. and I don't think anyone's saying that the vaccine won't work. We're just saying, you know, it won't work quite as well as it has up to now. At least that's what we think at the moment. Um, but in terms of what we should do, in terms of, of, of restrictions that we had last year. We don't need all of them, but there are some things we really should change in our behavior now if we want to um if we want to be cautious, if we want not to have a really major difficulty this winter.
1: So, portions from yesterday uh, announced new measures. Obviously, the government's been way behind the curve, but prompt everything's fine now. Yeah. They've announced masks have to be, I mean, compulsory masks in public transport and shops, slightly odd that wasn't the case before, uh, for example, plus uh, anyone who travels now has to have a PCR test and has to, be, has to self-isolate until they have a negative uh, test. What do, you think of those, what do you think of those measures and what, what actually are the measures we should be introducing right now?
2: Well, the World Health Organization has said if you want to manage a pandemic, you have to go early and you have to go hard. Um, Sir Patrick Vallance, our Chief Scientific Advisor, has said exactly the same thing just a week or so ago. We've gone early. That's great. Well done, UK government. But we haven't gone hard. We've actually done, actually suggested we do less than SAGE was suggesting in September, um, well before we ever heard of this variant. And what SAGE was suggesting to get high rates of transmission down, which is what we have currently, Uh, and is a a really bad situation to have a new variant come into play is to encourage everybody who can work from home to work from home and to have um, face masks in indoor spaces, in all indoor shared public spaces. Why limit it to just transport and um, shops um, when we know the virus doesn't think, oh, well, I'm not in transport or shops. That's all right. Then I won't um, spread myself. So it just didn't go far enough. And we just know um, from looking back at our own history, that um, dithering and delaying has cost thousands of lives. We need to learn the lessons and need to listen to the experts on this, which is do more now, to, to prevent later restrictions having to come in.
1: Hello.
4: And I think um, where we are at the moment with, with the Delta variant is that the, the, the very, very high level of infection in children and it seems that schools is where it's being passed and there are some rules in place at the moment which make that pretty much inevitable because at the moment if if one member of the family has COVID has has proven COVID uh, children are still meant to go to school uh, unless they are very sick themselves so they don't have to be tested they're sent to school in fact they're required to go to school uh, and the other children in the same class are not, their parents aren't alerted. Um, it, it seems not at all surprising that we've had you know, huge, huge numbers, I and mean, sort of in any week, six, seven, eight percent of certain age groups getting COVID. Um, if we continue to work like that in our schools and send our kids there when other people in their house have COVID, um, and sit them in unventilated classrooms and not allow them to wear masks, which is the case in lots of places. this this variant is going to be all over in no time. Um, And we're not actually doing um, contact tracing through schools either at the moment. So I think that's one of the things we could really, really tighten up. Everybody wants kids to be in school, but we need to be working a bit harder to make sure that is not the route through which this variant spreads through
1: our entire population. I, mean, I should say one of the other measures announced was that anyone who comes into contact with and someone infected with Omicron has to self-isolate because of vaccination status. But in terms of obvious things to do, you mentioned in terms of schools uh, and that being a route for community transmission. Um, my understanding is scientists suggested work calling on everyone to work at home um, where they can that is the single biggest contributor in terms of individual contribution to reducing transmission. And the other point is statutory sick pay, which is one of the lowest in the Western world. Uh, so people can actually afford to self-isolate without thinking they're choosing between not spreading the virus and looking after their families. So what do you think about those measures and any other measures? I mean, working from home seems that all the way through putting business interests in the short term ahead of public health which actually ends up hurting the the economy in the long term. So what do you think of that? I mean, because we was asked by uh, someone, uh, Shane Tomlin asked about it being airborne. And that the other point I wanted to ask there was, there's lots of focus on washing hands, but ventilation is surely more important and lots of workplaces are not well ventilated.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's about air quality. It's also about masks and the question of what sort of mask we should be using. I mean, doctors are still only being supplied with very flimsy ones. We need better ones. And actually, I think, the public need to be starting wearing higher-grade masks than we are at the moment. Um, we need to be wearing FFP2s, you know, the ones that really cover and stop the air leakage, so that you're not spreading it, um, and it will also protect the wearer a little bit. They're mostly about protecting other people, but they also do protect the wearer if they're the higher-quality ones. I also think, and we need to be working from home. I and mean, I think we also just need to be just being realistic about what we can do this season. We'd love to be going to Christmas parties and carol concerts and all the sorts of things where lots of people are short of singing and shouting and you know, laughing together. That's gonna to spread the virus. We're gonna to have to be so careful um, and it's miserable. And no doubt, Susan and I will be labeled doom mongers and killjoys. but actually there's not much joy in there being more COVID around. So we're gonna to have to do something.
1: Susan, finally, what do you oh, think? From this?
2: I mean, one thing that's not talked about um, is long COVID. Um, there was no mention of it yesterday. Yet we know something, it depends how it's measured, but around 10% of people who get COVID face having it for weeks, even months, and often being really debilitated. And that hits people's mental health, it hits their education, you know, their their work becomes more vulnerable, etc. So that needs to be taken into account. And yeah, one of the most important things to do is to support people to be able to isolate if they've got symptoms or, or if they test positive. As of March of last year, myself and colleagues have been running a, a national 2,000 every uh, two weeks, a survey, and we're still finding that less than half the people um, who are even symptomatic are isolating. And that the main reasons are they're worried about losing their job, they need to get paid, Um, to support themselves, their families. Um, And often they need to go out to get provisions or care for other people. And the UK has got such a low sick pay. I mean, compared to Europe, it's derisory. Many countries in Europe pay, you know, 70, 80, even 100% of wages and sick pay. If we want to solve this problem, you know, we have to be able to let people be able to live and keep their jobs by doing the publicly spirited thing by staying at home when they're ill. It's absolutely key.
1: Well, thank you so, so much to both of you for that. I know you've got to rush off, Susan, so I'll let you go, but it was really, really helpful expert analysis on where things stand. Uh, So huge appreciation. Do follow both on uh, social media where they are. uh, Their expertise is there for free. What a a world. Um, But cheers, take care of both of you. And thanks so much for being so clear and concise. See you soon. Great to be here. Bye. See, uh, brilliant stuff, thank you so much, for both of them. So, we're now going to go and speak to two brilliant uh guests, one who is live from South, Af- some, from South Africa, uh, the brilliant uh, Fatima uh, Hassan. One second, let me just bring in here we go. Hey, Fatima, how are you doing? Hi,
5: good in you. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Thanks for having me. Uh, Fatima
1: Hassan is the founder of Health Justice Initiative. Have I got that right? Yes,
5: you do.
1: Fantastic. And I'm going to bring in as well, uh, Miriam Brett, who's the Director of Research and Advocacy at Commonwealth. Hello.
3: hi, uh, lovely to see you both. Thanks for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to have you both. Now, before we begin, I'm just going to put this to uh, Fatima. We have here, uh, I think, the President of the South African Medical Association. Just a little clip. And I just want to put this to you.
4: I don't think um, that the British um, government should have just acted. They didn't really consult with us. Um, it's like a knee-jerk type of reaction. Uh, instead of um, applauding um, and, 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 and saying, let's, let's take hands, um, we were slammed immediately with a ban. So going forward, I can promise you, other countries, when they pick up a new variant, they're going to be very careful before they're going to announce it, um, looking at what happened to us. <laughs>
1: What do you think about that Fatima? I mean the fact that there's been so much anger in South Africa because people in South Africa think they're being punished for the advanced secreting science uh, and being able to identify it. So just tell me how people are feeling over there.
5: So first I think uh, people are feeling punished but I think it's a part of a pattern of you know the last 15 months of how the world has actually responded to Africa in relation to this pandemic. I mean, let's just take a few steps back. We have some of the world's leading scientists who are doing amazing work on genomic surveillance. And the teams that have been working to discover the variant here in Botswana were actually the first to go and alert the WHO. We know of cases that have now been discovered in other parts of the world, including in Belgium, which doesn't at the moment seem to have a connection to southern Africa. So, you know, our scientists have been transparent. They haven't been secretive. They've been sharing information. And I think Dr. Kutsia is right that instead of getting the cooperation and global solidarity we thought we would, we were slapped with an immediate knee jerk and, in my view, very racist uh, travel ban. So people are angry. People are furious. Uh, It's caused huge, not just inconvenience, but, I mean, it's really disrupted people's lives uh, because, as you know, the UK and South Africa has a long history and a long connection. A lot of people live in both in both countries at the same time. So yeah huge consequences for the continent of Africa and you know one of the journalists who was actually stuck on that KLM plane that you spoke about earlier uh, Stephanie Nolan who writes for the New York Times actually tweeted while she was on the plane because they weren't allowed to get off. She tweeted in the last 48 hours that if the CDC had discovered this variant with 22 cases, would the US immediately be put on a travel ban list globally? And I think that is the question we have to ask about double standards and about how the world actually views what is happening in Africa. And, you know, we'll talk later in the show, right, about vaccine hoarding and vaccine apartheid and vaccine nationalism as well.
1: So I'll start by putting that to Miriam, and I'll put particularly questions about South Africa directly to you, Fatima. But Miriam, then. In terms of, let's just talk through so people watching or listening to this on the podcast can understand clearly, what do we mean by IP, how it links to vaccines, intellectual property rights and so on. Talk talk us through that and what this means in practice.
3: Yeah, so the uneven global vaccine rollout has really highlighted long-term inequalities in the way that, uh, that medicines have been owned and distributed, and how this exacerbates power imbalances um, between global regions, and how it's highlighted the, the dominant power held by, um, by big pharmaceutical companies through their ownership of intellectual property. So uh, an example of this is when the UK was celebrating um, the, the rollout of the vaccine in January, The the director of the World Health Organization was warning that the the world was on the brink of a catastrophic moral failure. And the price of that failure would be paid by the lives and the livelihoods of the world's poorest. And right now, around 54% of the world population has received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine, but only 5.7% of people in low income countries have received at least one dose. Um, so the figures here are very stark. And to analyze how this has happened, we need to tap into the ownership of vaccines themselves. Um, Who gets to own vaccines is governed by intellectual property rights. That is a group of rights and protections around the creation of the mind. And that influences everything from ideas and inventions, how they are worked, how they are used. Um, And it covers things like uh, copyright, something that we'll we'll have seen often, um, trade secrets, trademarks, and and patents. And and it's also a hallmark of our trading system as well. And while it was originally intended to really stimulate innovation, um, the current approach to intellectual property has has often become a driving force for the accumulation and protection of assets by multinational companies. And what we're seeing here is that play out at a global level through um, pharmaceutical giants and the role of wealthy countries in in elevating their status and power um, and wealth. And so, although the vaccines are often developed in part by public funding, so an example of that would be um, that at least 97% of the funding for the development of the um, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine has been identified as coming from the public funding, Um, despite this, the rights of the knowledge around the creation of specific vaccines is often owned exclusively by pharmaceutical companies. So rather than sharing or commoning the intellectual property for vaccines, companies can effectively enclose this information to be owned exclusively by them. And what we're seeing just now is the result of that. And now there's been a huge amount of attempts, I'm sure we're going to speak about it in a moment, to actually overcome this and to challenge this deeply unequal and unjust system of intellectual property ownership. Um, But the protection of IP of COVID vaccines will inevitably prolong the global pandemic by undermining our collective capacity to rapidly administer vaccines for all. And there are massive global injustices in how that is playing out. It is exacerbating power imbalances globally just now. Thank you, Anita, Owen
1: sorry I muted my I was actually sneezing it's not, I've gone through COVID but I just didn't think the world needed to hear me vigorously sneezing whilst they were so so fixated on what you were saying which was brilliant Fatima t- talk about in terms of uh the West's hoarding of vaccines and the impact because this is your again something you've been campaigning about so tell me about tell us about your work and, and your own responses as what Miriam just said
5: I mean, let's just take a few steps back. We warned in March 2020 already that we would have a repeat of the HIV AIDS situation where people in low income countries, particularly black and brown people in Africa, Latin America, Asia, would be denied the fruits of scientific knowledge. So. We, with the, with the COVID vaccines, we, we socialize the risk. A lot of governments put in a lot of public investments, so did philanthropists. And we in South Africa, for example, participated in four clinical trials. So we contributed to scientific knowledge that allowed you to, for example, get the AstraZeneca vaccine before we were able to use it, or the Pfizer vaccine, or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, for example. So we contributed to scientific knowledge, there was a lot of public investment, there were promises of global solidarity, but then the opposite happened. And when we talk about the opposite happening, a lot of people don't believe it. So I'm going to just share some data and numbers with you. Of the 7.2 billion doses of vaccines already administered, these are safe and effective vaccines. We owe our scientists a great uh, debt of gratitude for getting these vaccines so quickly into the system. They were well-researched, we had clinical trials. All of the evidence is there. They have regulatory approval. Of the 7.2 billion doses, only seven people out of 100 people in low-income countries received one of those doses right? And the reason for that has been an artificial scarcity, a scarcity that is propped up by intellectual property monopolies. So in terms of the distribution of vaccines you have countries like your own, for example, that are very advanced with your vaccine program That has been administering vaccines for months now. Some of you started in January or February. Many of us in Africa only started in earnest after June, and some haven't even started you know, in, a, in a speedy fashion. We're still only getting deliveries for most parts in Africa now in November and December, and we're being told to wait for January and February 2022 for the first dose. So while you are administering booster shots or what's called the third shot or the fourth shot, while you've started vaccinating children that is not the situation for most people in in parts of the lower income uh countries in the world and and some of the lower middle income countries as well so the the figures are quite startling 147 doses per 100 people in high-income countries versus 7 seven people out of 100 people for doses in low-income countries. And so that, that is a situation of vaccine apartheid, propped up by two things, we believe. The IP monopolies and the refusal to support the uh, intellectual property waiver, which the UK government has been a major block on, as well as uh, the EU and partially the US, and especially, uh, we believe, Germany, Norway, Switzerland. Um, Over time, Australia and New Zealand changed their position on the the waiver. But the second reason we've had this is is because we believe that G7 leaders, including the UK government, promise solidarity, but advanced um, you know entered into advanced market commitments pre-ordered a lot of the vaccines cleared the shelves for themselves in what we call vaccine nationalism and also drew on supplies from the mechanism called covax which was supposed to supply vaccines to low-income countries so we haven't had the right political leadership we've had a lot of talk we've had a lot of pr statements Mm -hmm. we've had a lot of ribbon cutting we've had ceos of pharmaceutical companies uh, expecting standing ovations and winning awards But where it matters most to get vaccines to the people who are most at risk, healthcare workers in Africa, people over 70 in Africa, that has not materialized. This is why, Owen, we have a 7%, 7%, we should all be ashamed as a global community, 7% vaccination rate of people in Africa. If you look at the map of our world in data, it shows mostly light green and dark green in most parts of the world one continent where it's just beige, where people are waiting for vaccines, where they're getting sick, where they are dying, is Africa. And so once again, we've been last in line and worse has been in the last 72 hours, which is why, you know, when you ask how are people feeling in South Africa, we are so angry, we are so enraged that where we've been sharing information and being transparent and being open and we have really high class genomic surveillance systems then we are being punished. And so, you know, the For me, there is a sense of double standards. And when we say, uh, you know, I grew up under apartheid, I know what it means to be a second class citizen. So when we use the word vaccine apartheid, we're not using it lightly. We're using it because it really means a situation of a pandemic, the worst in a hundred years that we've ever experienced, where you have the haves and you have the have nots. And the haves are represented as those who are vaccinated. Of course, vaccine hesitancy is an issue that we're all dealing with around the world, but the drip feed of supplies of vaccines for people in low-income countries and for people in Africa have had a major impact on how the world has been able to respond to this pandemic.
1: I just specifically, I just wanted that point about vaccine hesitancy. To you, Fatima, because I've I've seen it circulating around social media. Uh, one journalist in South Africa, Eve Fairbanks, has suggested that big a big problem in South Africa is is fear of vaccines, partly because uh, vaccine skeptics from the United States are going viral in South Africa. <laughs> Tucker Carlson, Brett Weinstein, Doctor Robert Malone. Uh, as well as yeah, British and American vaccine sceptics, basically. And a lot of the problem in South Africa has been due to those going viral. Is that true? I'm just interested in how much of an impact that's actually having.
5: So I think there's a combination for why we're at about 35 to 40% adult vaccination coverage. Because remember the definition of, of a fully vexed person differs from country to country. Uh, in South Africa, at the moment, we only have regulatory approval to give uh, adults one shot of Johnson & Johnson, not two shots. They're still doing a study in healthcare workers and most of us at least about uh, you know, over 10 million people have received the Pfizer vaccine because we weren't getting deliveries from Johnson and Johnson on time. So it's been a com- combination of a drip feed of vaccine supplies, which has actually slowed down our program at the time when it mattered the most. At the time when you were getting vaccinated, we were still waiting. My mom was still waiting. My grandparents were still waiting for vaccines because there were no supplies for South-, for South Africa and the rest of Africa, and we were not prioritized. The second reason, I think you're right, the vaccine hesitancy, like we saw with the HIV AIDS crisis. And I've worked on the HIV-AIDS struggle about 20 years ago, we dealt with the exact issues of disinformation, fear-mongering, and scaremongering. And so what you saw was a very sophisticated machinery in South Africa in particular, which is very what I would call Trumpian. It's very much the Trumpian uh, political wing and that kind of style of convincing people that they sh- that there is no such thing as covid that they shouldn't take a vaccine that they are not safe and effective these are the same issues we had with arvs while people got sick and dying we had organized groups who were very well funded to peddle misinformation and to peddle lies with no consequence. South Africa even had to pass a law in this pandemic around criminalizing misinformation because it was having such a dire impact on our ability to test people to contain the pandemic and then to vaccinate people. Mm -hmm. We believe that with time, and obviously in this pandemic time is not on your side, But with HIV-AIDS, we had many years to build up community treatment literacy programs to show people that the ARVs would actually save you. And that is obviously what we have to do uh, with COVID. We have to show, and we already are showing with our data, with our hospitalization levels, with admission cases, that those who are vaccinated are not actually the ones who are sitting in ICU on a ventilator.
1: So Miriam, in terms of measures being taken to share vaccine IP intellectual property rights and who's blocking it and there is an alternative approach which has been trumpeted by various countries which is COVAX so what's the problem with that and and in terms of talk through them you know those measures to share it and what's the roadblock
3: yeah so there's been um waves of attempts to try and create a global patent pool and what that would effectively mean is that pharmaceutical companies give up their exclusive rights or are forced to give up their exclusive rights to vaccine patents so that other countries can afford to buy and create versions of the vaccine and what that would allow is to help enable governments in all countries to have affordable access to enough vaccines um to vaccinate their populations and it could also help boost production capacity as well So last year, for example, at the World Health Organization, there was an initiative to share intellectual property and scientific data to help fight the pandemic. That is called um, the COVID-19 Technology Access Pool. Now, among the countries who were supporting this were the likes of Argentina, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Ecuador, Panama, and notably absent from that list, um, I'm sure will be of no surprise, were countries like the UK, like France, like Germany. um, And pharmaceutical giants, also condemned the concept of creating intellectual pro- property pools off the off the back of this now incidentally in april the the people's vaccine alliance calculated that pfizer johnson and johnson and astrazeneca paid out uh, 26 billion dollars in dividends and stock buybacks to their share- shareholders in the past 12 months now to put that into context that those payouts that was enough to pay to vaccinate at least 1.3 billion people Um, And and as mentioned as well, intellectual property is a real hallmark of our global trading system. It's upheld by something um, called TRIPS, um, which is an international legal framework that, um, for example, establishes um, minimum requirements for intellectual property rules. Um, And that often enables pharmaceutical companies to um, oversee production and licensing for for drugs for, for decades exclusively. Now, importantly here, India and South Africa Um, initially proposed an IP waiver for COVID um, vaccines at the World Trade Organization, and we've since seen the idea gain traction. Um, But while many countries, particularly countries in the global south and and global activists as well, continue to make advances towards this, there's a really long way to go because countries like ours are blocking it. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and, And so there is a real fundamental imbalance here and who has? And as Fatma rightly identifies, there's enough press statements, there's enough patting on the back, um, uh, but actually the 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 kind of mechanisms to allow an equitable rollout of vaccines just have not been um, allowed to be passed because pharmaceutical companies and their lobbyists and and a handful of wealthy nations are are not backing this. Now, one of the most significant developments is um, an agreement called COVAX. And the idea would be to secure 2 billion doses of um, approved vaccines um, by the end of of 2021. So that was intended to be like a safety mechanism for equal distribution. Um, But it doesn't tap into how we reform IP. um, And actually, what we've seen as a result of Um, the rollout of this is that some countries and companies are prioritising bilateral deals, they're effectively dodging COVAX, and they're driving up prices and effectively trying to jump to the front of the queue. And the situation is worsened by the fact that manufacturers have prioritised regulatory approval in wealthy countries where the profits are highest. Um, So the People's Vaccine estimated that um, last month that only 12% of doses have been delivered so far. So what we're seeing in many respects is exactly the situation that COVAX um, was intended to, to try and avoid, where vaccine hoarding, where an uncoordinated response, where monopoly vaccine ownership is held in private hands, and where we're seeing a deepening of power imbalances off the back of that. Yeah,
1: so finally, really fascinating. I mean, in terms of um, what people in in Western countries should be doing and arguing for, what are the kind of key demands, what are the kind of the sort of work you're doing at the moment in South Africa, that can be supported, the sorts of actions you're taking. Just talk us through some of those.
5: Thanks. So I, I think that Miriam is right. One of the things we've seen in this pandemic is that too much power resides in the CEOs and the boards of, you know, about five pharmaceutical companies. So, in my view, they have us in a situation where we are hostages. We are, they decide licensing, they decide the orders, they decide delivery schedules, they decide which customers are more important than others, they decide whether they want to participate in COVAX or not. I mean, it's a pandemic and they're deciding on what kind of actions they would like to take and whether they would like to share the knowledge with who and when. So we have to support the call for a TRIPS waiver and a broader relaxation of intellectual property rules if we want to get access to not just the vaccines, but diagnostics and possible treatment regimens that may be coming onto the market soon. So we have to call for greater transparency. I'm not sure if you know, but all of the pharmaceutical contracts are subject to non-disclosure agreements. They have broad indemnification clauses that they've added. They've indemnified themselves against any kind of liability and governments don't want to disclose those contracts unless you go to court, unless you sue, unless you use access to information laws. So we have, you know, quite a, uh, a double burden. We're dealing with a pandemic where the virus is mutating and we've got all these new variants. We're having to deal with travel bans, the socioeconomic consequences of multiple countries having multiple lockdowns. And we need to address the socioeconomic support and help that the global community can give to all parts of the world, because everybody's affected. And mostly we need to vaccinate Africa fast. Seven percent, like I said earlier, is shameful and dismal. But there are enough people in the world with the right skills, there are enough governments that if they took the necessary leadership, we could, we could remedy that. Now, we don't want more promises of donations and pledges because the G7, including the UK, have failed to deliver even more than 20% of what they promised. So promises is not what we need. We need actual tech transfer, sharing of the knowledge, scaling up manufacturing not just for vaccines, but for all the different technologies in Africa, and actually get to the point where, you know, where everyone is vaccinated at, at, at similar levels. So otherwise, we're just going to be dealing with this pandemic uh, at least for the next 10 years.
1: Great stuff, both of you. Is there anything we're missing? I mean, there's a huge amount we obviously are missing because it's a vast topic. But is there anything particularly important you want to just finally get across? Because that was very comprehensive and brilliant by both of you. No. Oh, Miriam, sorry, go for it.
3: Just just quickly to say, I mean, as Fatima said, the responsibility rests here with those countries that are blocking it in a large part as well, and the UK is part of that. So we can take action here and now to address that. Government leaders like the UK need to support proposals um, for a waiver on intellectual property through CTAP. We need to enforce pharmaceutical companies like those based in the UK to share their COVID-19 related technology and the know-how um, through through the, the um, technology access pool. And we need to significantly enhance um, public investment in manufacturing, but also ensure that that is distributed evenly as well, that we are creating distribution networks globally. Um, and uh, The role that we have played in this is not only shameful, it is deadly, Um, And we we need to take action now, because the consequences are unimaginable.
5: I just, Owen, I just want to say one thing, that when the UK government supported accelerated vaccine research in this pandemic, it was not Boris Johnson's money. He didn't take it out from his pocket, he used your money. The people of britain actually own that vaccine and i think that you have the right to demand that that technology is shared with the rest of the world mm-hmm. and that astrazeneca doesn't get to play god in this pandemic and decide on only a handful of licenses you could actually really you know be responsible for vaccinating the whole world with with your own vaccine which is the people's vaccine
1: great stuff do you follow both by the way Uh, You can follow Fatima on at underscore Hassan, that's two S's, F, so at underscore Hassan F. um, And Miriam is at Miriam, M-I-R-I-A-M, Brett, t. -T. So do follow both of them on Twitter. You've both been really, really brilliant. Really appreciate uh, your time being so comprehensive, detailed and accessible all at the same time. What a combination. (laughs) But uh, that was brilliant. So thanks so much and speak to you both soon.
5: Thank you. Thank
1: you. Take care. Look after yourselves. Now, um, twenty-seven refugees died in the Channel this week. News which horrified, of course, many of us. Uh, all too many have died, not just in the Channel, uh, but making their way to various European countries. Now, this is an. This is something which has been coming for a long time, this particular tragedy in terms of just how horrific and deadly it was, Uh, because safe routes for those often fleeing terrible persecution and violence have been rendered almost impossible by the British government. Now, I should say before I bring in our next brilliant guest, when there was the refugee camp at Calais, I went there myself back in 2015, and I met people who'd gone through unspeakable horror. Uh, I met a young Afghan teenager who'd watched his father being shot dead uh, by the Taliban. I, I met a guy from Darfur uh, whose whole village, whose his fellow villagers were burned alive to death. Uh, I met people who were fleeing Eritrea, which is a state arguably as repressive as North Korea, though it doesn't get anywhere near the same attention. And what I found, which is backed by the facts, is. Um, Overwhelmingly, those who come this far, and I should be very clear, 86% of the world's refugees are in poorer countries, often those countries with the least resources and ability and capacity to look after refugees, Uh, only 14% in richer countries. Uh, Britain itself takes far fewer refugees, Germany three times more, France twice as many, and the very few compared, the very, very, very few who come compared to the global population of refugees uh, to these shores are Uh, Up to 50% are because they have friends and relatives here. And many of them, it's because they speak the language, often because they come from former colonies, countries, I should say, whose resources we stole, um, which is partly why we have the vast wealth we do as a country. Now, I'm just going to bring in the brilliant uh, Zoe Gardner, who's been an absolute trooper this week on the nation's media, uh, offering a counter-narrative to the racist uh, narrative of the British government, and the right-wing press. She is uh, poli- po- head of p- does policy and advocacy for the Joint Council for Welfare of Immigrants. Hey, how are you doing?
6: Hi, Owen. Thanks for having me.
1: Great to see you. Um, just firstly, then just just talk us through. Um, in terms of, I mean, I just spoke a bit there, but just the racist. Na- Before we talk about government policy, the racist narrative of why for our fellow human beings that why very few compared to the global population, why they're coming here and the, and, and the work that that G, JCWI has done in terms of working with them and the reasons. So, so just flesh out some of the reasons people come here.
6: Well, I mean, you gave a really good um, summary there before. Um, the, the key thing to remember is we're not some kind of preferred destination for most of these people. Um, the people who do try to get here, the very, very few, usually have... Um, completely understandable reasons to do so. So, for example, JCWI is working at the moment with um, uh, a young man from Syria. He, When he turned 18, um, the government forces targeted him for recruitment to Assad's military, um, and he um, had to escape at a moment's notice. There's no resettlement scheme from Syria anymore. There's no visa available for somebody like that. Um, his only chance to escape... Um, you know, if, his, if he refused to join the military, he would be most likely disappeared into one of Assad's torture cells. Um, so he had to escape at a moment's notice. And he has two sisters living here in the UK. Um, so the obvious thing for him to do was to find a smuggler and, um, who, who would be able to get him through, through the borders to the UK. And he crossed on one of those boats, um, made that horrendous journey. Um, and when he entered the um, asylum system here... Um, the UK has branded him inadmissible, because anybody who now makes that crossing, um, not only do they face these horrendous risks and have no other way of getting here, but once they get here, the government now brands them inadmissible. And what that means is that they give themselves permission to send them away anywhere else, not just to a country they may have been through, not just to a country where they may have a connection, because that's here, but to anywhere else where they can find that will take them. And so they give themselves a 6 months period to do that. So what's happened to that young man that we're representing and to thousands more refugees who arrive here is that they're just being put with their asylum claim on hold in limbo for another six months, um, being held in absolutely appalling conditions. Um, You know, these are people who, as you say, have seen things that really, we are fortunate not to be able to imagine. And they're being held in limbo Um, with the threat of being just sent away um, here, there or anywhere for six months before they even enter the asylum system. And then somebody like that that client that I'm talking about, and like most of the people who are making these crossings on these boats because of the countries they come from, they're likely to be eventually recognised as refugees. But our asylum system takes an average of over a year to make a decision. So we're talking about six months on hold, in limbo. Then the likelihood is the government doesn't find anywhere to send them because why would another country just take in the people we don't want? Um, And then finally, entering the asylum system, waiting potentially well over a year, um, up to three years, not uncommon among the people we work with, um, before ever getting the chance to have a stable place to rebuild their lives from. And this is somebody who has, as I say, two close family members living in the UK, it makes absolutely no sense that he had no way to get here. And we see people like this every day. And they're They're ordinary people like you and me, Owen. They are people who deserve a decent life as much as any of us do. And the idea that they shouldn't have any choice um, in where to rebuild their lives, to be close to their loved ones, to be in a place where they can speak the language, where they feel they have a future, is absolutely dehumanizing. It's a failure to recognize them as fully human and, and as fully entitled to a real life, not just immediate physical safety, but a real life and the opportunities that we all take for granted.
1: Now, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, responded to this catastrophe this week by saying the UK has a clear and generous and a humane approach. Do you just want to unpick that?
5: I
6: think many of us were just unspeakably angry to hear the crocodile tears of so many politicians who have pushed refugees away and pushed them to be making these incredibly dangerous journeys they were warned they knew this was coming we've all known this was coming and for her to dare say that we have a generous system and that these people for some perverse reason chose not to take the safe routes that are available and chose to put their lives at risk in these tiny dinghies in the most busy shipping lane in the entire world it doesn't she takes us for fools if she thinks that we believe that they're making that choice when they could have come here safely. We don't have safe routes. I will explain what we have in place at the moment is a program called the Gateway Program. It's been a long-standing, at least ten years program that's operated.
1: Oh, hold on. Through we... resettlement to the UK, oh, so these are people Sorry, who are already
6: on. living in UNHCR-run refugee camps. In two thousand and twenty-one, we brought under eight hundred people to the UK. And there's nobody from Syria who has a route to um, resettlement. There's nobody from Afghanistan. They haven't opened that scheme. Um, So if Priti Patel believes that under 800 people a year is a humane and world-leading response from the UK, then she's on a different planet to the rest of us. And we all know the answer. It's obvious. We need safe routes for people to travel to the UK in order to, to seek asylum.
1: So in terms of those and you by the way we can still hear you frozen but we can still hear you so that's fine oh, okay i'm sorry no, no 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 it's fine It's by the way it's a fl- it's, it's not an unflattering freeze sometimes that happens it's very good you look great it's fine all great um in terms of so talk, talk just just great guy kind of in terms of the demands that need to be made in terms of what what's meant by say brute's in practice what we're arguing for and what britain could be doing in order to do far more not not least given what other countries are and that's not by the way to say they're doing a great job Uh, it's just in comparison to britain so just just talk us through that
6: well you're right to say that it's quite it's quite a horrible situation to be comparing us unfavourably to France, because the treatment of the French authorities of migrants is actually really appalling, and they don't take in as many people as they certainly could help. And the people who are destitute in Calais, the people who are trying to make this crossing, experience daily abuse and harassment by the authorities. Um, and they, they live without any support. The authorities try to prevent um, aid organisations from providing them even with food and water so you know when we're being unfavorably compared to the french there's really something wrong but actually stop,
1: um, just on that quickly because as you say appalling, just disgusting treatment by the french authorities and but actually the argument that's sometimes made well actually refugees are treated far more favorably here in britain i mean the, the daily payment is actually lower in britain for example than France. absolutely
6: yeah and and anyway i mean you know your average person on the street has a lot of misconceptions, but really doesn't know how the process of seeking asylum works in this country. And that's here in the UK. So if you think that people from Sudan and Afghanistan have an in-depth understanding of the different, um, you know, amounts of support that are available to asylum seekers in either France versus the UK, I mean, it's just not the case at all. They don't understand at all what they know is that they have connections to the uk they know that the uk is a rich and stable country they they know that they speak some english and they they have cultural links i mean often as you said it's through colonialism Um, and so they they come here and they hope for safety that's all they don't have any ideas about how how to get the best deal. They just believe that we're a country that will respect their human rights. And Priti Patel is trying to prove them wrong. And her bill that is before parliament right now is designed to make things so much harder and so much worse. The government's own evidence, it has to do an impact assessment when it brings out a new bill. Its impact assessment says that there is little evidence, I would argue no evidence at all, um, that the approach that they're taking is going to stop people from taking irregular journeys to the UK. Indeed, it argues, not me, the government's own impact assessment says it is more likely to push people to take more dangerous routes. Um, And that's what's happened. You know, why are people crossing the channel in small boats now, which is more dangerous, even more dangerous than trying to stow away in lorries. Well, because we've done such a huge push towards uh, shutting down the ways people could get onto those lorries. So this is what happens around the world is what's always happened. If you close down routes, The routes shift. As long as the border is closed and there are desperate people trying to cross it, the smugglers have a market and they will find a way through. And they don't care how many people die. And the the British government is supporting their business model by failing to provide people with a safe route across. And what we mean by that is, yes, more resettlement. So let's open the Afghanistan resettlement scheme now um, at once. There's no excuse for the delay. Let's open up more resettlement routes. Let's widen access to family reunification. And that means both from around the world and from within Europe, because since we left the EU, there's no way for, you know, if if you find yourself in Greece and you have family members here in the UK, used to be that you could apply to rejoin them. That's not the case anymore. So we need to reopen that. But most importantly, we really just need to provide a travel document to people for the purpose of coming to the UK to seek asylum. And that's really the only solution um, for these completely manageable numbers of people who really, you know, we, we owe a lot better to. And um, it's very often, I mean, the case with Afghanistan, it's the most obvious, but it's very often the case that we are implicated in the reasons why they have had to flee their countries. Um, and we really can do better. Um, and, and the idea that the compassionate response is the one that pushes people away and says that we won't take anyone and that none of this is our responsibility is just backwards speak.
1: Just finally, because we're so lucky to have you, but I know how cold it is outside. I've been outside, <laughs> and you're currently standing outside in in very nippy temperatures. What can people either watching or listening to this do? What would you what what? How can people? Because people are listening to this, they want to do something or, or watching this. What what can? What's your suggestions?
6: So I think we have a moment now with people paying attention that we might be able to get some amendments on this nationality and borders bill that we looked impossible a week ago now ideally they would just throw the whole bill out because it causes it will cause so much harm in so many different ways that i don't really have time to get into in detail now but um if you have a a conservative mp then please write to them and say that you know you're not fooled by this idea that it's compassionate to turn people away um and that you you really believe that um uh the amendments to throw out um, the offshoring clause and the pushbacks um, really need to be supported. Mm. And then if you have a Labour MP write to them and say, you know, your response shouldn't be saying that you'll be doing what the Tories are doing, but better, your response should be talking about safe routes and that we're looking to you to do that because the Labour has opposed this bill and their shadow immigration minister, Bambos Charolambos has been pretty strong on opposing the bill. But overall, Labour's message um, is about, you know, we'd, we'd do the security with France better. Um, and that's not, that's not opposition, um, and that's not actually the mood in the public either. I think that there are so many people who understand that we need safe routes, real safe routes, real alternatives. Um, and so pressuring our, our politicians at this stage, while the bill is in Parliament, is going through Parliament just next week at report stage. Um, if there's a serious rebellion and some of those amendments get through, it will make a difference. And after that, it's, you know, supporting your local refugee organisations. Kent Refugee Action Network helps, you know, unaccompanied minors arriving on the coast. Um, It's getting out on the streets to the demos. um, And it's, it's making your voice heard to show them that the votes are not in cruelty.
1: Sorry, you've been absolutely brilliant as ever. Your work is absolutely fantastic. We're really lucky to have you. Do go and get somewhere warm now because it is really, really cold outside. But we were it was brilliant to have that so clearly put and so humanely as ever. But lots of love and speak to you soon.
6: Thank you. See you
1: soon. Uh, brilliant stuff from all those guests. It's good to be the token man um, for change on a programme. Just before I wrap up, um, I just want to... It was already... I think the response was already made... Um, Brilliantly by Susan earlier, but I did uh share a telegraph article to try and maybe as, as a kind of prompt to, you know, as a kind of get a discussion going. Uh, but it was from that South African doctor who suggested or seemed to suggest Omicron only causes mild symptoms. It's already been, I think Susan Mickey went through this, but it is being taken out of context. She was referring to a small group of young, healthy people and warned of severe disease in other groups. I'm sorry to end on a not cheerful note, but it's important to say that for due, just basic journalistic reasons. Um so actually that was a it is a misleading news story being circulated by the telegraph because that has been used to suggest well actually only mild symptoms are being presented, but that's only in the sorts of patients you would expect normally mild symptoms with COVID-19, but again to emphasize we don't know much yet definitively about omicron we'll find out in the coming weeks obviously the world scientific community uh are throwing everything out understanding it properly but i just thought i would end with that um i hope you're all doing well i am now going to go out into the very very cold but beautiful snowdonian countryside in north wales um and uh this week we've got we've got more interviews we've got uh Documentaries in the works and we've got a program next Sunday. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash Owen 84, particularly for those documentaries which we're looking to do ever more on. Um and check out the interviews we've got this week. Um with that, because I'm holding up my i I'm it's kind of a holiday. I'm out, I'm out with the, you know a few mates, just out in the scenic weather. It's slightly unfortunate because I've <laughs> the, Half of them have come down with a very severe cold. It's not COVID, but it is a very severe cold. Uh, classic. But nonetheless, those of us who can are gonna go out in the countryside. I hope you're all enjoying your Sunday. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you all in this coming week and next Sunday. Uh, thanks to our guests, as ever. They were brilliant. Lots of love. Take care, everyone.